I want to turn our attention now to another attack, the attack that uh, rocked Sri Lanka and really the, the entire world back on Easter Sunday. And there is a plenty of debate going on over Sri Lanka's shutdown of many Internet services and many social media platforms in the wake of that terrorist attack. And to join us now to discuss further is Jan Ritzak. He's the associate director at Stanford University's Global Digital Policy Incubator. And he joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Jan, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. Good afternoon. Good to be with you, Jeff. All right. First off, uh, why exactly did the government there in Sri Lanka, uh, why did they do this? Why did they shut down some pretty popular social media sites, including Facebook and WhatsApp? So the social media shutdown in Sri Lanka was ostensibly to uh, stop the spread of disinformation. And uh, that has been disinformation and and fake news, um, as it's popularly called, uh, has been connected to episodes of violence in Sri Lanka, most prominently, including the uh, the last uh, uh, the the last time that uh, the government shut down uh, social media sites in March of last year uh, for several days. So officially, the, 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 the version that the government wants to uh, communicate is certainly uh, targeting and addressing uh, concerns about disinformation. Okay, so a lot of people are saying that this is a censorship and are pointing to government censorship, but the government here is saying that they are doing this in the interest of uh, public safety, that they didn't want to see any further violence incited? Absolutely. That is that is certainly it. And there's certainly a kind of duality about it. But what we must remember, I think, Jeff, is that uh, shutdowns ostensibly target disinformation, but they are also, uh, you know, they essentially they also uh, prevent true and accurate information uh, from getting to the people that many times uh, need it the most. So in this particular case, following uh, such a, a terrible attack, uh, the shutdown prevented people from uh, being able to connect with their loved ones uh, at a time of great uncertainty and, and great chaos. So paradoxically, what we've seen is that people have to rely uh, increasingly uh, on rumors uh, in, in such a disrupted information space. So in a strange way, maybe this is a decision to further fan the flames that they were trying to tamp down the government, because uh, you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of folks, particularly on uh, Facebook, will uh, mark themselves uh, safe whenever there is a, a terrorist attack, whenever there's maybe a, a natural disaster, that sort of thing. That, that's been pretty commonplace that we've seen over the last few years. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the, the important thing here, too, is that, uh, you know, disinformation as such, uh, it has underlying causes. It still travels in what is essentially an information vacuum. So a shutdown like this uh, targets the, the channel through which one of the channels through which disinformation travels, but does nothing to target the underlying causes. And what I found in my research on India um, has been that the only effect of uh, shutting down access to social media, which happens uh, extre- uh, extremely uh, frequently in India, is uh, is sowing further chaos and uncertainty. And in fact, what they what they do is uh, is that they exacerbate and increase. Uh, levels of violence during a protest. And this is not just something that we see for a day, but over the space of several days in a row. So essentially, this this suggests to us that shutdowns of this kind are simply not the right tool to address uh, uh, potential surges of violence. Joined by Jan Ritzak, he's with Stanford University's Global Digital Policy Incubator, talking about the Sri Lankan government's decision to shut down social media sites in the wake of the terrorist attack there on Easter Sunday. And uh, Jan, I was going to ask you as well, I was kind of surprised to learn that a a government actually has the ability to do this, to turn off some of the world's most popular social media channels. But uh, I guess apparently they do. I mean, do they just flip a switch? 
Yeah, so there are several ways in which this can be conducted. Um, in this particular case, uh, one, you know, one thing to remember is that uh, uh, social media platforms and telecommunications companies are both bound by the national law of a given country. And uh, the provisions that exist in, in most countries' laws uh, allow for some form of intervention in, in communication. Um, and in many cases, what we see is that the laws are so vaguely formulated that in a, a situation of uh, concern for national security, the government can, in fact, uh, order um, platforms to comply with, uh, with such an order. And they don't have much space for resistance. What is the likelihood of something like that happening, say, uh, here closer to home there in the U.S. where you are or here in Canada? Yes. So technically, uh, there, there is a provision in uh, the Communication Act of 1934 in the United States that allows the president to take executive action uh, to, uh, to essentially control or, or, or shut down access to, um, to communication networks. Uh, it has not been used so far, but in, in theory, hypothetically, it is, uh, it is possible. And closer to home, we've seen some examples of uh, somewhat similar cases, uh, such as in the, uh, the London attacks in 2005, uh, when the cell phone signal was disrupted intentionally uh, in the London tube. Uh, just a few days ago, we saw uh, the London police uh, try to disrupt um, Wi-Fi signal also in the tube um, in order to try to prevent um, a chaos during uh, during climate uh, protests. So you know the, the the specter of this happening is is always there. And I think the the important thing uh, is also to observe that uh, in in on a global level, the number one country by far that uh, conducts the largest number of shutdowns is in fact India, which is the most populous democracy in the world. So the danger of implementing this kind of restriction is that it will normalize and even legitimize the act of shutting down communication. And if the world's most populous democracy is doing it, then uh, you can imagine that the regimes that are less sympathetic to democracy will take it as a green light for repression. Mm, Interesting. Uh, This is one tweet that caught my eye that I wanted to get your take on, Jan. Uh, A few years ago, somebody wrote this. A few years ago, we'd view the blocking of social media sites after an attack as outrageous censorship Now we think of it as essential duty of care to protect ourselves from threat. Facebook, your house is not in order. Is that where we are here in 2019? Yeah, so um, I think it's very tempting to attribute violence uh, to social media companies. And they are certainly not blameless in terms of, uh, you know, perpetuating the spread of disinformation. But I think it's another thing altogether to suggest that shutting down access to communication channels is a viable way to um, address deeply rooted tensions in society. So I think we're setting a very dangerous precedent when um, experts and media figures uh, condone or even endorse a shutdown like this without question, without even requiring that the government demonstrate that this measure has uh, helped to uh, prevent a certain number of terror attacks or violent unrest. And so more and more what we will see is that um, governments will continue to do this and be inspired by one another's actions without being held accountable by uh, both the media and, and experts. All right, but should we be blaming government solely here? I mean, if they are saying in this case that they are trying to make sure that misinformation is not spread and further violence is incited, uh, should we blame them for shutting things down? Or do we need to look at Facebook, WhatsApp, and these other social media companies who haven't exactly got a great track record when it comes to responsibility or taking responsibility for what's on their sites? 
Absolutely. There's, there's, there's absolutely no reason to believe that uh, one single side is to blame here. Uh, the, there's a, there's a cer- certainly a narrative for both sides. At the same time, uh, we, I think we do have to recognize that the platforms are taking uh, some uh, action in, in response to this. So, for example, WhatsApp has limited uh, forwarding of messages to five, first in uh, India and then on a global level. Uh, and that has, although we haven't seen an impact assessment of that, um, potentially that has helped to curtail uh, some of the more damaging uh, effects that we have seen. Um, Facebook is, is working quite actively with several governments to, uh, to address this issue in, in multiple ways, uh, including through uh, education campaigns on a, on a local and global level. So there are, uh, there's also... There are also fact-checking initiatives that happen, again, uh, regionally, locally, uh, nationally, internationally. So uh, what this really means is that there are several different initiatives, and many times the platforms are part of those initiatives, that are uh, legitimate <laughs> replacements for this kind of blunt force tool that has, has not only been shown to have a, a deep economic impact. In the case of Sri Lanka, we're talking about more than five, five to six million dollars uh, in a country that has a GDP per capita of less than four thousand um, dollars. But also, uh, you know, a, a measure that has been found to be ineffective and that has been found to uh, essentially damage a, a number of human rights. Yeah, just finally, I mean, we can sit here and we can point fingers at uh, the government, the Sri Lankan government in this case, or we can point the finger at Facebook or even Mark Zuckerberg or uh, Twitter or WhatsApp. But really, is the ultimate answer here, is the ultimate responsibility on, is it with the end user that when it comes to fake news and the spread of misinformation, that uh, it's the individual that has the power and, and essentially uh, don't be a carrier? Absolutely. Um, and that is important to remember. Uh, at the same time, you know, uh, the, the, the information space and connectivity uh, in uh, Sri Lanka and, and, uh, and many countries in the world is changing very rapidly. So uh, in the case of Sri Lanka, uh, Sri Lanka has seen a, a, a doubling of its uh, user base of the Internet itself uh, since 2011. Uh, and it's advancing rapidly, which means that uh, this kind of education and uh, placing responsibility into the hands of the end users um, has to be uh, prioritized when uh, connectivity is expanding on a, on a rapid scale uh, in, in these countries. And that's why I think the usefulness of these education and fact-checking campaigns uh, is, 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 so, uh, is so great. Um, and of course, the government can be helpful in this. Uh, certainly, it would be more helpful than to create further uh, disruption, further chaos, and further uncertainty at a time when uh, there's, there's already so much doubt about the um, veracity and legitimacy of the information that is being circulated. All right. Jan, really appreciate the time and the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure. All right. That is Jan Ritzak, who's an associate uh, director at Stanford University's Global Digital Policy Incubator on the decision decision of the uh, government in Sri Lanka to basically shut down the Internet, uh, some pretty popular social media platforms in light of Easter Sunday's uh, terror attack there.